Hello and welcome to the Self-Publishing Journeys Author Bootcamp episode number five. Today I'll be revealing the 50 things that you need to know about self-publishing. And what I've done is I've listed 40 things that I've learned in the four years I've been doing this podcast, five years that I've been self-publishing. And I just want to put everything into one bumper episode. And the last 10 things are 10 tips to hit that five-figure formula, that five-figure month. So let's start with 10 basics. And these are, I guess, around my kind of writing philosophy, the things that I've learned. Now, what I should say, I'm always nervous about sharing philosophy and and personal opinion, because this is just what I think. This is just what worked for me. And somebody else will tell you they did it a completely different way or they disagree, and that's all fine. But this is my podcast, and this is kind of what I've learned. So it might not apply to you. You might not agree with it, but it's offered uh, in the spirit of maybe helping you to you know, think about a different approach, uh, maybe to think about things a different way. But I'm not uh, setting myself up as a guru with this. This is just how I think, where I am right now in my self-publishing journey. So number one, start yesterday. And if you can't start yesterday, start today. And if you can't start today, start tomorrow. But in a nutshell, start as soon as you possibly can. Okay, just start. (laughs) Don't think about it. Don't procrastinate. Just start. And the best time to start, as they always say, was yesterday. But if you can't start, you know, if you didn't start yesterday, start today. And if you can't start today, start tomorrow. Just get it done. Start. If you've been thinking about being an author, don't twiddle your thumbs. Don't make excuses. Don't find all the reasons that you can't do it. Just do it now. Make a start. And item number two, there is never going to be a best time to start. Okay, you know, I'm at the time of recording this. I've, I'm 55. I've just recently celebrated my 55th birthday. You know, I can tell you as an old gipper, there's never a best time to get married. I think of all the thing I pro- things I procrastinated about in my life. Never a best time to get married. Uh, I haven't had to face this one, but there's never a best time to get divorced. There's never a best time to start a journey, to lose a job, or to start a job. You might as well just do it now, okay? The, the perfect conditions just don't exist. Now is the best time to do anything, whatever it is you're thinking about, because you'll figure it out as you go along. You'll find a way. If you really want it, you'll find a way. And I've kind of learned that one in life as well, that, you know, I can remember sitting there deciding, oh, should we have kids now? Should we have kids later? You know what? None of it matters. <laughs> you know, life plays out just as it's going to play out. So, if, if you if you're hanging around saying oh I'll 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 start I wait till I'm retired till I'm a writer you know or I wait till I've changed my jobs and reduced my hours till I'm a writer well actually you know what just start now and it'll all fall into place around you. Item number three, there are always easier time wasting things that I would rather be doing than sitting down and writing for the four hour stretches that I do, or even when if I'm, I'm writing for now there's always things that are easier that will waste time that I'd rather be doing when I sit down in this squeaky chair that you can hear squeaking in the background to do my work, right? It never gets easier to push through that. I'd always rather be doing something. I'd always be rather having a cup of tea and a laugh in the kitchen through the door there. But if you don't push through that inertia, you will never write books, okay? So it's not easy for anyone It's not easy for anyone to sit down and write for four hours. No one has some sort of gift or unique uh, ability to do that. We would all rather sit and look out the window, listen to music, watch a film, doss around. We'd all rather do that. I always would. Every time I sit down, I would rather do that. But the only difference is, is that you push through it and you do it. 
that that's what gets the books written you know just push through it every single time i sit here i think you know do you know what? i'd rather just play a little bit of music have a little potter on the internet it's always easier to do that but if you can't get over that if you can't get through that you won't write the books item number four no excuses i've met authors who've written books against all the odds with health difficulties family difficulties work difficulties I've got none of those disadvantages, I'm very lucky, none of those disadvantages in my life, apart from my own inner resistance. But I've seen people who have done amazing things to to write books. You know, I've got nothing to moan about in my life at all. Um, you know, so I should have been, I should have written twice as many books as I have, uh, with given that situation. But there are no excuses. I've never met people, you know, people with just you know amazing things you think why haven't they given up how have they managed to do that I just don't know how you've done that and um, you know those people are all around us in this industry so you know push through it there are no excuses you can get around absolutely everything just get on with it and write whatever you can for however long you can wherever you are right now <laughs> if that's five minutes a night you know so be it it all gets you closer to that first book and that brings me to number five. A book is not rocket science, although it is rocket science, but it's not rocket science at its core. A book is just made up of one word written after the other. And if you don't keep adding those words, the book won't get written. So keep the momentum going, however slow, however hard, always keep moving forward. And this goes back to point four, no excuses. If you've only got five minutes a day, five minutes a day is enough to write 50 words. 50 words done repeatedly, 50 words at a time, will soon get you a 50,000 word book and that's your first book. All you've got to do is keep adding the words and keep going. With whatever time you've got, wherever you are right now, there is always five minutes in the day to write those words. Item number six, get used to making projects work. Push through the pain barrier. Come up with solutions. Be a problem solver. I've heard so many writers saying, oh, um, you know, I've got all these unfinished projects in the drawer. Um, you know, I, it wasn't very good. It'll never see the light of day. I have to say, ever since I've written, um, and, I, and this might be because of a radio background, because quite simply, when you've got stuff to put on a radio show, there just is no failure. You, 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 you've got to come back with something. I, I could remember, I've probably told you this story before, I could remember going out to do an item in a hot air balloon in the Lake District. And we were really up against it. We used to have to find loads of slots to fill this program. And and I was recording this slot. It was going to take, you know, a couple of hours in the afternoon. There was a lot of driving involved. I had to meet this guy with the balloon in the middle of nowhere in the Lake District. And um, we needed those two slots that it would take up in the show. It was, you know, it would help us fill an hour of radio effectively. And when we got there, the guy said to me, um, I think it was too still or too windy, I can't remember which one it was, too, too windy possibly for us to, um, no, it must have been too still, I think, too still, I can't remember, we couldn't go up in the balloon anyway, uh, for whatever reason it was, but he said, I'll tell you what we can do, is we can set the basket up at the burners, and we don't have to put the, we don't have to put the balloon on there, and we can kind of mock it up, we could, we could, you know, talk about it as if it's happening, so I recorded the whole tape um, as if we were mocking it up. And when I went back, and actually this wasn't the right decision, but I was working with a, a lady that I worked with for many years in radio, actually, who, who said, we're not going to run that because that's deceptive. And I, you know, I was a run, rookie reporter in those days and, and you know, she made the right call on that. Um, but I came back, I came back with something. It just wasn't acceptable 
to me to leave empty-handed. Now, as you know, as it turned out, she said, we can't run that. You know, it's deceptive. You didn't really do it. So we shouldn't run that piece of audio. And that was the right decision to make. But I didn't come back empty-handed. I came back with a solution, which we could have packaged in a number of ways to, you know, to get those slots filled. So, you know, get, and I think that's maybe why I make the books work. You know, I don't, um, there's only one book. So I've written, I don't know how many books I've written at the time of recording. It's 23, 24, whatever it is. It's 20-something books that I've written at the time of recording this. Some of them are unpublished now. That's why I always find it difficult to give you a number because uh, I've written more than that. I've written about 30 probably, but they're not all published at the moment. Um, and I've never stopped. I've only stopped one book, which is End of Men. And the only reason I've paused that book, that I'm still determined to write that book. In fact, I'm making plans for it. As I speak now, I've made plans for it. I've budgeted for a cover. I've budgeted for an edit. I'm still planning to write that book. But because I could tell it, I, I knew it was, knew it was going to be a different, difficult project. And because I could tell I was going off at the right tangent, and because of the way life went during that quarter, I have simply paused it and put it to the side. I haven't stopped it. I'm coming back to it. Um, and so that's the only, um, if you listen to these diaries, you know that's the only time I've kind of given up on something and said that's not getting done. So I've always pushed through the problems with books. And I would encourage you to be a problem solver. Don't sort of, you know, write 25,000 words and say, oh, no, that's not going to work. Make it work. Find a way to make it work. Go back, um, you know, replot it, rewrite it. Do what you have to do to make it work, but get used to making projects work. I think that's a state of mind. I think it's an attitude. And so, you know, it, and, and, and giving up on a book is a form of procrastination, I think. You know, I've got I've got 10 unfinished books that'll never see the light of day in my cupboard. Well, that's not acceptable to me. And I know, you know, I sound like a tyrant when I talk about these things, but I don't know whether being in radio and just having to deliver the goodies all the time has made me like this. But you know, I, I, I've also painted myself into a corner with the Grid 3. Um, I got absolutely stuck with the Grid 3. And I put it in a drawer, came back and figured it out, and it got published. So to me, it's not acceptable to abandon a project. If, I, if I'm thinking of abandoning a project, it simply means I've taken a wrong turn somewhere. And if you take a wrong turn in the car, you reset the sat-nav, and you go back to your destination. You renavigate to your destination, and I would encourage you to do that because if you know if you're going to get if you're going to bang the books out, and, and you know this is really what this culminating episode is about. I bang the books out. If you've been with me for four years, you know that I've just been constantly right, 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 getting the books out. You've got to bang the books out. You know, unless you're one of these lucky authors who gets you know the lightning strike and, and you just have to write one book and you could dine out on that you know most of us don't have that experience in which case you're going to have to write the books so i think it improves your stamina as an author to push through those problems and make the books work the trick of course is you know not to write a seventy-five thousand word book and then realize that it's not working um you know you need to be quite brutally truthful with yourself and you need to know when it's going wrong and then go back and make it make it work if you have to but become a problem solver as an author uh, and I would encourage you as a, as a mindset to improve your stamina when you're writing a lot of you again who've listened to this podcast for any length of time will know that in the past year I've been doing some running and you know I've never been a runner in my life I've never been particularly athletic but I've, I've kind of found my thing which I'm very happy about but as I've been doing these runs uh, every week for Park Run, and I'll pick them up again as soon as we're able to, writing is very much like taking part in a Park Run. So, you know, when I started running, I was rubbish. 
um, I, um, you know, my wife will tell you I could barely move when I did that first part. And I'd been running on a machine, a kind of cross trainer, and I was doing five kilometers on the cross trainer. And I just assumed that I'd roll up and be able to do five kilometers running. Well, actually, I couldn't. And I, and I was, uh, we were, we were visiting one of the kids at university, and I was so sore and achy and pain, I had to actually sit down when we went to walk around a park and say, "Look, come and get me on the way out." I can barely move. So, you know, I started from from nothing, and. I kept running, I kept turning up, which is what I've said to you earlier, you just keep writing the words, just keep doing the runs, uh, even though it was hard, there was lots of friction there, there was loads of reasons for me to just give up and stop, but I kept going, and at first I had to run and walk, I couldn't run the whole five kilometres, I had to, to run it and walk it, and my first aim was just to be able to jog it really, really slowly at a ridiculous rate, and I'm just telling this to my wife now at the time of recording this, you know, I just said, just if you can, try and just trot it really slowly just very fractionally faster than a walk because the the sort of mental breakthrough of, of just feeling that you can run five kilometers rather than have to walk any of it is massive and from that point on all you've got to do is speed up your time that's all you've got to do you've, you've, you know you can run it all you've got to do is speed the time up and it's the same with writing a book if you can write that first book you know you can do it all you've got to do is get better at it and, and speed it up and make it better. It's the same as a run. So every time I'm doing that run, I'm thinking this is just like writing. It's just like writing. The other thing that makes it just like writing is that I'm surrounded by people just like me. They want to do the same thing. They want to get around the park, run and get a good time. There are people behind me. There are people alongside me. And there are people way in front of me, doing way better than me. They're flying past me and I can't possibly do that speed. And that's just like it is when we're writers. Okay, we start usually at the back. We can't even run around. We can't even write the first book at first. It's really hard to do that. And then we write the first book. Okay, maybe it's not very good. Maybe you know it's not the best we could do. We've got, we've got better in us to come. That's fun. It's absolutely fun. It's, this is why I call it self-publishing journeys. Everything's a journey. Hopefully, you just keep getting better at everything that you do. But you just keep going forward, and then before you know it, you're passing people on the run or you're passing people as an author and you're leaving more people behind you than are in front of you and you're progressing so it's very much like a park run writing it's there's so many analogies there but we're all running we're all running at our own pace we're not at the front we're not at the back we're just somewhere in the middle moving further from the back all the time and closer to the front we'll probably never be at the front unless we're really really lucky it's very unlikely that we'll be right at the back. We're always going to be somewhere in the middle there, just doing our own pace, doing as best we can, trying to improve all the time. We only fail if we stop turning up to do the running. And it's the same as writing. You only fail if you stop turning up to do the writing. That's the only time you fail, because everything else is progress. Item number eight, you will frequently feel like giving up. There's an episode, if you're new to this, if you've just discovered this podcast, there's an episode, I can't remember where it is, it must be about a year, year and a half ago, uh, which I call my meltdown episode. It wasn't really a meltdown, but but it was a kind of, oh, why am I doing this? It's not working. It was that kind of an episode. And it was one of the podcast episodes that I got the best response to because I think, you know, I think it resonated with so many people listening to it, you know, because that's what... That's the experience that most of us have, that just complete frustration. Why am I doing this? What's the point of it? I'm not getting anywhere. I'm banging my head against a brick wall. This just isn't working. I've had that so many times. You know, just listen to the back episodes. You can hear it constantly. 
frustration and that frustration is going to continue you know it's there's always another level another frustration another goal that we're trying to hit you know we can't hit it you will frequently feel like giving up i can't tell you how many times i've felt like giving up um and and you know regularly but i can also tell you and this is one of the few advantages of being an old gipper you know i can remember sitting there desperate to get into radio it took me ages to get into, it takes me ages to do everything it took me ages to get into radio i started i did my first radio broadcast at the age of well really my radio career started at 16 when i started the disco you know that's really when when that love of of that scene started i started doing discos i started doing writing articles for the school newspaper and then at the age of 18 i got the opportunity to stand in on a hospital radio show and all of a sudden i saw that the, the disco love and the writing love came together and radio was the perfect thing it brought all those skills together and from 18 i wanted to get into radio and so i went to university i uh, was at university for four years training as a teacher i did four years of student radio there i think i did a m another couple of years after that uh, I did a course in 19, I taught for a few years, did a course and then finally got into radio. So um, 1991 was the year I got into radio, 1981 was the year I started doing discos. Ten years from, you know, just deciding that you love a thing and, and, and want to do it to actually making a living from it. Ten years it took me to, to get to that point in radio to where I was earning my salary, my income uh, from that. So this, this, I say it's a, one of the few advantages, there aren't many, but one of the few advantages being old Gipper is you do get to look back at, you know, experiences in your life and, and, and they get some sort of context. And, um, you know, so I know I can remember frequently thinking, what on earth am I doing trying to get into radio? Who am I? Who do you think you are? And I enjoyed an 18-year career in radio, had a wonderful time, and then it was time to leave and move on and do something else. And that was the right time too, incidentally. You know, I don't look back at it, never look back and think, oh, I wish I hadn't left radio. I never think that. Um, 18 years was great, loved it, moved on, very happy with what I'm doing now. It's all about choosing the time to go, I think, the right time to go. And so um, you will frequently feel like giving up. You'll wonder why you're carrying on. No one will seem the slightest bit interested in what you're doing. You'll think you're all on your own. And the truth is, is people aren't interested in what you're doing. Most people don't care what you're doing. I don't mean that in a nasty way, but there's just other things to be looking at. Um, you know, they won't care at first, that's for sure. But don't give up. You know, your dreams of being a writer only come to an end when you stop writing one word after the other. However slow you go, however painful it is, however long it takes, so long as you don't give up, it's all to play for. Things can fire for you at any time. And when you do, you'll have this beautiful back catalogue of books all lined up, ready to be read by your brand new fans. Number nine, don't rule anything out. I made an early decision to go it alone. I had a few skirmishes with traditional publishing. I don't regret that for a moment. Um, you know, I tried self-traditional uh, publishing. It didn't really sort of suit my personality type. I'm, I'm more the kind of person who says, well, you know, whether I do know best or not, I know best. And I'm frequently wrong, as you know, but I still want to do it my way. I've always been the kind of person if, you know, if my mum said, don't touch that. Um, don't touch the stove it's hot I needed to touch the stove to make sure it was hot I always had to find out for myself and, and that's how I learned best uh, I learned best through experience rather than being told so um, you know I made that early decision to go it alone I don't regret that for a moment because in the meantime I've sold books I've written books I've improved my craft I haven't been waiting for somebody to say you know that's right for publication now um, you know all those things and I've made money from it so I don't regret that for a moment but but if somebody came along and offered me a sweet deal 
a traditional deal. Would I take it? Yeah, of course I would. Um, you know, if you've listened to this podcast, you know, for even a couple of weeks, you'll know that I'm all about the money. I'm not, I'm not an artist who says, oh, you know, I must suffer for my art. I, I don't care if I don't make any money from it. Um, it's all about the art lovey. I don't do that. I'm here to make cash. Okay, I, it's not a hobby. I've said this before on the podcast. You know, a hobby is something that costs us money, takes us lots of time, and we don't make a profit from it. A business is something that we make a profit from. All right, so I love writing. I enjoy writing the books. You know, I'm very passionate about it. I want my book to get my books in the hands of readers. I want readers to love my books. All those artistic criteria apply to me too. But if it doesn't make a hobby, I'm, it, it's not a hobby for me. It's got to be a business. It's got to make money. It's got to be in profit. So. If somebody came along with a traditional deal and it was structured correctly, of course I would take it. And the vanity element, I, I would bite the hand off it. Okay, I, You know, the vanity element, of course I would. Um, of course I'd be flattered by it. Of course I'd love it. Uh, but the money's got to be right. That, that's the important thing for me. You know, the, the deal and the money has to be right. Um, I am an indie author now. That is not written in indelible ink. Um, and if it ever made sense to pivot, I would. All my business uh, decisions uh, are made on that basis. They're business decisions. Um, you know, do they fill me with joy? That sparking joy from Maria Kondo, do they spark joy in me? Is this something that makes me feel good? And, you know, is it going to make me money? So I am an indie author at the moment. I've been an indie author for the duration of this podcast, but I don't rule out traditional at some point or hybrid at some point. I'm more likely to be hybrid, I think, but I absolutely, definitely would take a traditional deal. I think the difference is that I possibly won't go hunting for it. I might do with end of men. End of men might be the exception to that rule. But but my, my view always is what my job is, is to write great books, to build a fantastic audience, and hopefully to come to the attention of somebody who says, well, here's a guy we need to be speaking to. That's kind of my strategy with that. So they come to me rather than we go to them. Uh, and when they come to me, that's where we can talk better terms for money. If I go to them, that puts them in the driving seat. So this is all about business to me. I would do anything that I needed to so long as it made business sense. And then finally, number 10 in this list, and, and I've kind of hinted about this already, treat your writing like a business. If it's not running at a profit, it's a hobby. Making profit is my number one aim and always has been. I want all those arty things like reader approval, but if I can't make a profit from my work, I've just got a nice little hobby, uh, not a business. Okay, so I think that's a mindset thing as well. I think it's really important to have that mindset set. So when I was making a Facebook software, we worked with this concept of bootstrapping, that you created a MVP, a minimal viable product, uh, and you released it and started selling it to make sure that it was something that you should be, you know, that you should be selling. And you released fairly lean. Um, and then that got some money in. And you built the software and developed the software when the money came in. And if the money didn't come in, well, it wasn't a viable product and you'd be wasting your money if you spent thousands and thousands of pounds on software development anyway. And I think that concept of bootstrapping, that, that I've got to earn money before I spend money, is a, I, I think that served me really well because it's always made me focus on the bottom line. It's always made me look at the, the, the numbers, the income. It's made me driven to market my books and find ways in which to sell them. And I think, you know, that constant drive for profit is what's finally led to those five-figure months. You know, the funny thing about those five-figure months is is, is that I, I thought, I hoped I was going to be able to do it through a rapid release sequence. I didn't do it through a rapid release sequence. That fell flat on its face. But strangely, 
because I did that rapid release and because I had all those books and all that work ready, when John Cronshaw came and suggested to me this box set strategy and told me that it was working for him and I thought, right, give it a go, I had the books ready. I was in the right place at the right time because I'd done the work. So the rapid release didn't work, but surprise, surprise, something else did. And it was only because I'd done the work in the first place that I, that I was able to do that. So nothing's ever wasted either. That's the other thing. But treat it like a business. Always be looking at the money. Because, you know, you might be rich enough to say it is a hobby. You know, I can write books. I can spend all my life doing this. I can spend 500 quid on a cover. I can spend 800 quid on an edit. And it doesn't matter because I'm so rich, I can burn money. You know, I light the fire with, with pound notes. Um, I can't do that. I'm sure you can't do that. I'm sure most of you listening can't do that. So treat it like a business. Make sure. Always look at the money. Try and pay for your edits and your covers out of earnings from your other book. I think that's a really good mindset principle if you run it like a business from day one. Now, from day one, you're going to have to subsidise it a little bit from day one, but don't let subsidising from the house money, you know, you're going to have to put a little bit of seed money in, as we call it, just to get it going, just in the first instance. But aim to, you know, make that a debt to the business, pay it back to yourself, pay it back to your household budget, and then use sales of those first books to make the money for the edits and the covers for the next books and for the marketing. It's a really good, I think, a good strategy and a good mindset to have. So there you go. That's 10 sort of bits of Teague philosophy there. You know, take them or leave them. It's, it's, that's just my thinking. Uh, I'm no guru. That's just the rules that I kind of apply. And they're just as likely to change in five minutes time if I learn a new trick. So, you know, take them or leave them. That's, that's really the best way to judge those first 10. The next 10 things that I want to give you in this list are tools, tools that you must use in your indie author business. And again, you know, I've because I'm a bit of a geek, I like to try everything. I've I, In the early days, I tried Calibre and all the cheap softwares and oh, I've tried everything. You know, I've, I've, and if I haven't heard of it, I won't have tried it. If I've heard of it, I would have tried it. And I, I've got um, 10 bits of kit software services that I use. And if you're sort of new to this business, um, I just want to give you the, you know, just say, look, these things work. This is how I've done my 20 odd books or however many it is. This stuff just works. And if you know, don't, you can, you can mess around if you want. You can try everything out. But if you just want a straight path to these things are perfectly right. They do the job, get on with it. This is how I would do it. So in terms of tools, then number one, when you're writing, write with Scrivener. Words are pain in the butt. It, the formatting's horrible. Always comes back to bite your word. I hate word. <laughs> we have to use it sometimes. Editors, unfortunately, use it. So you have to, at some point, you have to convert to Word. Um, but, you know, Scrivener is the best thing to write and plan with. You can move your books around. You can back them up, save them. You know, it's just a brilliant bit of kit. Now, Scrivener does come with a little bit of a learning curve. But, you know, because so many authors use Scrivener, just do a search on YouTube, how to use Scrivener. Or if you've got a problem with something, just put a search term in YouTube. Somebody would have made a video on it um, telling you how to do it. Or, or get a book on Scrivener. It's, you know, it's like WordPress for websites. So many people use it. There's loads of free resources out there telling you what to do with it. Or, or look out for one of Joanna Penn's regular uh, webinars that she does on Scrivener, where, where you get talked through the, um, the basics from, is it Joseph? I've forgotten his second name, the chap who does the Scrivener books. There's loads of training out there. I, I bought Joseph, I've forgotten his second name. I bought his training when I learned Scrivener. And that just 
taught me everything I need to know. But, um, you know, don't use Word. Um, Dri Drive is better than Word. Google Drive, Docs is, is better than Word. Um, you know, if you need to use something like that, a Word does make a bit of a mess of things, to be honest with you, even, even though a lot of authors will tell you they use it. And um, but I think Scrivener is a much better way of doing it. So I, I have templates in Scrivener for books that are 50,000 words, 75,000 words and 90,000 words. And when I start a new book, I just um, open from template and half the work's already done for me each time. And I just find that that, you know, makes it like a sausage factory with my books. I'm not wasting time doing things and everything's backed up. And because I got all the original Scrivener files, if I do a re-edit, I can simply clone a whole book. So I've got the last one as it was. I've got all the versions of the book in Scrivener. I just think it's much better than, than using Word. So Scrivener, look up Scrivener. It's a very cheap piece of software. It doesn't cost very much. It's a one-time license fee. Um, and you'll hear, and if you're new to this profession, you'll hear everybody talking about it because many, many self-published authors use it. The other bit of software I'm going to tell you about, and this one is expensive, I'm afraid, but you know, you might as well just get it. I, I've tried all the cheapos and they don't do the job. I can code. I used to do my books in HTML so I can, I can code them. But you know, the best thing that ever happened to me for formatting books was Vellum. There is nothing quite like it. And actually this morning before I recorded this, I was on the 20 books to 50K Facebook group. And there was somebody there saying, just discovered Vellum. It's brilliant. I'm never going back. I don't care what it costs. It is brilliant. And you know, it, it is, it is, it saves you so much time. It does such a brilliant job of the formatting, not just of eBooks, but of paperbacks too. And I've remember, you know, I've done it all the ways. I've formatted in Word. I've used all the cheap versions. I've done every single thing there is out there. Just buy Vellum. Just just be done with it. You know, make it your first big purchase that you make when you have a good month on on your books and get all your books in Vellum. Because the other thing about Vellum is, it's just like I do with Scrivener. I save all my final files, and if I ever need to update something, it takes me two minutes in Vellum to just create a new Vellum file and have it uploaded to to Kindle or Google, wherever it is I'm uploading to. Now, uh, you know, I understand that not everybody has got the money for this. It's about £200, something like that. So I know you might not be able to afford it straight away, but make it a priority because it will just revolutionise your writing life. And I usually say to people with Vellum, you know, if you get, if you intend to write, if you're one of these people who just writes one book and that's it, don't bother with Vellum. But if you're somebody who's doing this seriously and you're planning to write, you know, 5, 10, 15 books, you're in this for the long term, you absolutely need to get Vellum as soon as you possibly can. Now, you could use Vellum, you can download Vellum, um, and you can sort of go through the whole process of formatting a book for free and you only have to pay for it at the point at which you're getting the file outputs to, 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 to upload. You can't do the whole thing, but you could try it out enough to just see what a breeze and how easy Vellum is. Um, but, you know, I would say to you, prioritise that as a first early expense as soon as you can. It's well worth doing if you're in this for the long term couple of other things that have made a real difference to me, and I was late to finding them actually, are Kalytics and Publisher Rocket. Uh, in simple terms, both of those, what I use them for is to find keywords to put in my book listings so that my book listings get found. But the thing I found the most, most useful for is for getting my books in the right categories. So uh, again, you know, I, I know I keep referring to if you've listened to this podcast for four years, but if you have, you know, you'll know that I went through all the struggles that everybody else goes through. And then one of the tricks to getting your books to number one, not in the biggest charts, but in smaller winnable charts, one of the tricks to doing that is to is to pick categories that you list in that are busy enough to make sales, but not so busy that you can't get to number one. 
And I did that in the free categories at first. So my first breakthroughs when I, I got to number one in, in free charts on Amazon. And then latterly now I'm getting to number one in paid charts. And, and you know, I aspired to do this for so long. And now I'm being number one in you know, my three charts in the UK recently and number one in my three charts in the US. And, and I, I've almost become sort of instantly a, a blase about it. But the reason that that's worked, the uh, the only reason that's worked is because I used Kalytics and Publisher Rocket to find categories that are busy enough to win, sorry, to busy enough to make money in, but not so busy that I can't get into the top 10 or the number one slot as I have done. And I completely credit Kalytics and Publisher Rocket for that. So they're great tools to have again from the get-go. They cost you know, of course they cost. But if you're sort of saying, oh, I know I can't spend any money on my author business. How could I possibly do that? Just take a look at how much money it takes you to open a shop or a restaurant. You know, before you even draw breath, you're paying business rates, you're paying rent. You've got all that kit to get in there, the ovens, you know, the safety equipment. Uh, you've got to pay for all the safety tests. Um, you know, uh, this is before you even start making any money. You've got to recruit the staff, train the staff. You've got to pay for advertising. That's before anybody even walks through the door. The expenses in this business are absolutely minimal, but there are some expenses, and these, these are the ones that I'm recommending to you now, that will move the needle for you in your author business. And they're expenses that you should lay out on as soon as you possibly can. I know not everybody can you know, afford those straight away, but it's good to prioritize those. Number four on my list of tools is MailerLite. Now, there are loads of ways, loads and loads and loads and loads of ways of running email campaigns. Okay, uh, and I've used many uh, softwares myself. I started with Aweber. I actually started doing it myself in the in the early days. I used something called, um, oh, I can't remember what it was. I used to use a self-hosted email system. I forgot what it's called now. Um, and then I used Aweber. I've used GetResponse, which I loved. I've used um, all sort of Infusionsoft. I've used. I tried ConvertKit. I, and some of them I've just taken trials on. I've used ones that you won't even hear of and aren't even around now. I have tried lots of email marketing services, and I can tell you that they're much of a muchness. Um, MailChimp, I didn't mention in that list too. They're all much of a muchness. They'll do the same thing. They all send out emails. And that ultimately, what it will come down to is how much does it cost me when I start to build my list? You know, is it going to cost me a fortune? Am I going to be looking at the, how much this costs? And do they have sort of great useful features and do they innovate? You know, do they just stand still and never add anything or do they change with the times? And so at the time of recording this, the service I recommend to you is MailerLite. It's free for beginners. It has all sorts of extras. If you've heard um, episode four of these boot camps, you'll know all the advantages of using MailerLite, but it's got free landing pages in there, free websites. It has automations in there, all the things that you need to, to run an author campaign, a suitable author campaign. It's MailerLite's brilliant. Very, very reasonably priced. It's had a few technical glitches, but you know they always sort the technical glitches out. I think it innovates in a brilliant way as well. So for my money, MailerLite's the one to go for in terms of your email marketing. Just get start off with a free account and see what you think of it. Number five on my list is Novel Factory. And this is something that you won't hear any other indie authors tell you. Uh, you won't hear any, I've never heard anybody else mention the Novel Factory. Um, it's a UK based software. I even, I've met Katya actually at a writing conference who's uh, behind the software. And you know, she is herself a writer, but I love the novel factory. You know, it's funny. 
you know, you have to find your own softwares and things that suit the way you think. But I love the Novel Factory and I still like using the Novel Factory. And, and unusually, um, Katya let me have the, the cloud-based version of it, but I still like the downloaded version. <laughs> I feel really sorry for them. They probably want to they probably want to stop selling the downloadable version and get everybody into the cloud version. But I love the downloadable version. And I still find it the best way to plan my books. And I don't use all of it. You can actually write your whole novel in Novel Factory if you want. You know, it's very good for that. But I decided to write in Scrum, and that's how I like writing. And I plan in the Novel Factory. And when I'm writing, I have two screens. I have the Scrivener in front of me, what I'm writing in, and I have my Novel Factory notes and plans on the right-hand screen so I can refer to it. And, um, you know, there are other softwares that do this, but I don't like them as much. So, you know, this is this is really, I'm pretty well the only person who's got a podcast that I know of that will keep saying to you, Novel Factory, Novel Factory, Novel Factory. I love it. and Loved it from, from the get-go. But I particularly like, and it's just a silly thing, but I cast. I like the way I can cast my characters in the novel factory. I put a photograph of them, and I can see a little profile of them. Uh, and I also like the way I can put images with my locations, and it suits the way I work. Because when I'm looking at a character, I like to see. I always cast an actor, or if I can't find an actor that looks how I imagine my character, I just find a, you know, an internet shot. I look for something like you know, you know, a man with brown hair or something like that, and then find a model um, or a catalogue picture that looks like the character because it helps me to visualize them I do the same with locations and I do that in Novel Factory and and I uh, use a sort of template in the Novel Factory to plan out and sketch out my books and it just works really well for the way my mind works so you know I say you won't hear zillions of people running podcasts saying use the Novel Factory I think I'm like a lone voice in the wilderness but I would encourage you to take a free trial of it and check it out because I've just found it invaluable I've written virtually Oh, I don't know how many books, certainly from the grid I was using the Novel Factory. So I must have used it for over 20 books and I just like it. Um, so I use the downloadable version, trying to pivot to the online version, but old habits die hard. When it comes to your author website, I, I am beginning to change my tune a little bit about this in that with Mail and I now having set up free landing pages and you know, really as an author, all you need, the very least you need, you do need to have some web presence. But on MailerLite now, you can do these lovely landing pages that where you can put, you can code them like a web page. So you can have pictures of your books there and people can buy the books off the landing page. And you can have the most important thing, which is for people to sign up to your email marketing channel, which obviously is what MailerLite gives you. So, you know, frankly, you could just have a landing page on MailerLite if you want to. And so what I would say to you for a website is, you know, at the very least, at least have a page that says, your author name, some pictures of your books, and the ability for people to sign up to your email marketing list. So you can build up that list of prospects and potential book buyers. That's at the very least. But if you decide you are going to take it a little bit more seriously and have a proper website, it's always better strategically. And again, if you listen to the bootcamp episode I did on WordPress, I go through all the reasons for this, but it's really, it's better and cleverer strategically to always own your own website so no one could do anything unpleasant with it um, and take it away from you. So if you're asking me what I recommend, I recommend that you build your author website, your long-term author website, or you have at least one permanent web presence built in WordPress and hosted on SiteGround. Now, again, there are many, many places you can host your website, but, you know, if you're asking me, just use SiteGround, okay? You know, I, I don't want to beat around the bush with this and be diplomatic, just use SiteGround you know, and use it with WordPress. Um, it's the right price, it's the right service, it's reliable, it's brilliant, it's got everything you need, it's got SSL certificates built in for free, everything you need is there. 
no fuss, no nonsense. Um, you can start with a package that's cheap with just one website. It won't cost you more than £100 a year. It's considerably less than that in the first year. SiteGround's great. It's fast. It does all sorts of things to speed your website up. There are others available. They're too complicated. They're too expensive. They don't work as well. They're not as reliable. Don't use them. Just use SiteGround and WordPress. Okay, I'm not even going to be beat around the bush with that. <laughs> if you want to know, that's how you do it. Okay, so you can go off on all sorts of details if you want to. And I've done them. Believe me, I've been everywhere with websites. I, um, you know, a couple of years ago, I'd have told you to go with HostGator. They were brilliant. They may well be brilliant now, uh, but they blotted their copybook with me and I moved to SiteGround. And I moved to SiteGround via all sorts of other services. This is why I'm telling you this with such confidence, because I've tried loads of other services. They were rubbish. And I came back to SiteGround, who were brilliant, and I love them. So for all sorts of geeky reasons, just listen to the episode that I did on WordPress to find out what those reasons are. But I'm just saying, if you're going to get your own web website, build it in WordPress, host it on SiteGround. There you go. Um, a couple of graphical tools I think are well worth having. And one of these is a new kid to the blog, but BookBrush. I mean, BookBrush kind of came out of nowhere and is already innovating superbly. And nowadays, when I, when I, I mean, I'm using BookBrush for all sorts of things. Um, and I pay for it as well, by the way. But the thing I like most about BookBrush is the ability to make um, nice adverts for BookBub. When I'm doing BookBub ads, um, it's really easy to make the ads for that with the text on. And I like it particularly because I, I love the images, uh, the social images that you can do. So when you've got your book cover, um, you can put your book cover in there and it creates all sorts of pictures like with, you know, pictures, somebody reading in front of the lake and a picture of your book next to a cup of coffee. And they all look really brilliant. There's just one or two in there that don't quite work, but most of them look brilliant. It just gives you about 100 pictures that you can use on social media for your book. And you just pick the ones that suit the mood and the tone and the audience of the book. And, and I, I've just done that with all my books now. So it gives me loads of images. I just, you know, it's just part of my outputting process. When I've got a new book, I get to do all my book, uh, book brush uh, images and it takes no time at all. And you, know, you used to have to pay somebody to do this on Fiverr. You don't have to do that anymore. And I use book brush to create my book bub ads as well. I use it for other things too, but those are the key tasks I use. So book brush, well worth getting the first free account and I would actually say to you just, you know, it's one of those accounts that you need to upgrade as soon as you can. Before BookBrush, I used Canva, but I still use Canva. I don't think at the moment um, the two aren't mutually exclusive. So I, I pretty well use Canva almost every day. Uh, and I use BookBrush for creating sort of great graphics every time I've got a new book and I'm promoting something new. And it creates those beautifully social uh, media sized images for me. Item number eight in this list, Canva does the same thing, but different things. So I would use Canva, uh, for instance, I like to get stock photos off Canva. That's very handy for that. I do my banners for social media on Canva and I put my I put my 3D book covers on Canva and, and then get nice backgrounds. I, I use promotional images, create promotional images when I'm uh, running book funnel promotions as well. Book funnel, I've already done a bootcamp episode on so if you're not familiar with boot, the book funnel listen to bootcamp episode number four i'll t tell you all about it so canva does things that bookbrush doesn't bookbrush does things that canva doesn't but if you can imagine those venn diagrams that we used to use when we were at school there is some overlap between the two but i don't think i think you've got to have both of them in your, your armory at the moment i don't think you could go either or i think you've got to have both of them now canva i use for free if I have, the only time I pay on Canva is if I need to 
buy an image to license it. So they're, they're only a dollar a time on Canva. So I found, I, I have had upgrades of Canva. I can't, uh, paid upgrades. Uh, I've done the trials and I can't make enough use of it um, when I pay for it. So I always go back to free. And my preferred option is always to, to be free and just pay for the images one at a time. And I think that works out cheaper than paying for it. Interestingly, in my corporate life, because we had corporate fonts, I did. We did pay for it there, and I got the use out of it there. But I don't get the use out of it as an author, so I would recommend free Canva. And then finally, number nine, as a, a graphical site, um, my favourite site is My eCoverMaker. When you get your uh, book covers from the designer, sometimes they give you a couple of three D promotional images. But what I prefer to do, I like to have control over that. So what I usually do is I use My eCoverMaker which effectively just creates lots of different versions of um, 3D versions of your cover and it flips it to the right, flips it to the left, views it from above. It does all these different views of your cover and, and you just need to, generally, you just need to be able to pop the uh, ebook cover in there and it will make you all sorts of, you know, hardback covers, softback covers, uh, you know, piles of books, all sorts of 3D options. And so when I use my cover maker, book brush and canva together that takes care of absolutely every single promotional graphic need or website graphic need that i need it gives me absolutely everything i need graphically now with my cover maker what i would suggest you do is save your books up pay for it for a month rather than annually and then batch batch produce every single 3d cover option that you possibly can while you're paying for it for a month and then turn the subscription off so it's really easy in my cover maker to turn the subscription on and to turn the subscription off so i recommend and this is how i've tended to do it is i tend to um just turn it on for a month i think it's about 15 dollars. i get maybe if i've written a trilogy I, I get loads of covers of each of the books of the trilogy so i really get my money's worth and then i switch it off so i'm not paying for it again but i think that's to me those those trio that trio of graphics software sites are brilliant bookbrush canva and my cover maker and then finally in this list of 10 tools i want to mention genius link now what genius link does is it allows you to promote your book in a way that is international promotion friendly so you may not realize this if you're new to the industry but if i send out a book link uh, and i live in the uk then amazon will default to its uk site and when i send that book link out it's a via an email or on social media. If somebody in the US clicks on that link, they won't be able to buy from the UK Amazon website. They have to go to amazon.com, not amazon.co.uk. And that creates what we call friction in the buying process. Because if I'm in the US and I click on, I'm looking at the book, they're going, oh, I like that. And I put click, you know, buy now. And, it, and Amazon will say, oh, you can't buy this. You've got to go over to amazon.com. So you have to go to amazon.com and then find the book again and buy it. And by that time, you've given up the will to live. And so that you don't want that to happen. You, you want people to make the buying experience as easy as possible. Now, what Genius Link does is it allows you to, to cut and paste your wherever it is in the world, in my case, my UK Amazon LinkedIn, it creates a special bespoke link that I can share in my emails or social media. And when, when somebody clicks on that link, it detects where they are in the world and takes them to their local Amazon site, whether it's German or Spanish, you know, or in Canada or India, wherever it is, it will automatically take them to their site. And that's a great thing because it helps them to buy 
your book. So Genius Link, again, you know, a lot of these things are paid. We can't make a business without breaking some eggs, I'm afraid. It's not, not hugely expensive, but these are all ninja marketing tools. These are all tools that are going to help you move the needle in your author business. It's good practice. Now, you can use books to read, um, which Draft the Digital will give you for free. I personally don't find the books to read links quite as neat. The problem with those is that when you click a books to read link, uh, it is a free alternative, by the way, and it is good, and I do use books to read. But I think from a sales point of view, because I've done a lot of this work in internet marketing, the problem with books to read is it takes you to a landing page where you've got to choose where you want to buy the book, Amazon or Google or wherever it is, and that's an extra step in the buying process. And a rule of thumb in internet marketing is the fewer things you have to do, the fewer things you have to click to get to the point of purchase, the better. So uh, that that's the only reason I don't like books to read. It is a brilliant thing, and I do use it in certain circumstances. Well, I use it when I'm going wide, to be honest with you. You have to use it when you're going wide. Uh, I use Genius Links for you know Amazon-only links when I'm Amazon-exclusive, but I do use books to read when I'm going wide, because frankly, it's the best thing when you're going wide. So that's 10 tools that I use in my author business. And just remember, you know, giving you that list of tools is taking me five years to get there, to that, that distilled list. I've tried everything, I've made the mistakes, I've torn my hair out at Word. That is a distilled list of five years of experience. That doesn't mean I'm always going to use those tools or services, but that's what I'm using after five years. That's my preferred toolkit. Let's move on to marketing now. I think one of the first disappointments of writing the first book is you, you think that writing the book is the whole journey, and it's not, unfortunately. I don't want to sort of, you know, I don't want to pop your balloon, but but what we're, and I, I had to go through this as well. We've all had to go through this. We, we think that the, the, the monumental effort is in writing the book and actually getting it ready to publish. Unfortunately, what you find at that stage is actually it's not. That's just the beginning of the journey. You've got to learn how to sell the blasted thing. And as self-publishers, we have to do this on our own. So let me tell you what I found to be most useful in, in flogging books and getting books into the hands of readers. So this next list is 10 marketing tools. So the site um, that has worked best for me across the board, I think it's, it's fair to say, is Freebooksy. Freebooksy was the first email promotion site that moved the needle for me, that got me to my first $1,000 month and to my first £1,000 month. And, and Freebooksy did that. Now, I write in trilogies. And so when I promote my books, I write, um, I give away book one in the trilogy and I make money on books two and three. So this is how I can make money from giving away a free book. So with Freebooksy, um, the principle is, is that you list a book for free, you pay Freebooksy, it's usually about $60, $70, depending on which genre you're writing in. They will send out an email to thousands and thousands of readers in that genre, and so many people will buy or, or download your book. Now, I can Bargain Booksy is the 99p version of that. I haven't found Bargain Booksy effective, and I generally, I haven't found selling books at 99p or, or cents effective. I've generally found it more effective to promote the first in series for free, and then to heavily promote books two and three in that trilogy, and then to make the money when people read through the series. So Freebooksy is my favorite marketing tool. It's the one that's very visibly done the best things for me. Now, after that, 
is BookBub. Now, BookBub is hugely expensive. It still makes me gasp when I pay for BookBub. I've, I've, I've had BookBub um, promos. This is a what's called a featured deal promo. I've had several featured deal promos now, and every time it takes my breath away when I'm paying $500, $600 for a book promotion, because you think to yourself, I'm just about to give away a free book. How on earth am I going to make five or $600 giving away a free book? Now, I never give away a free book, of course, because I'm always giving away the first in a trilogy. I make my money on books two and three. But it always takes a leap of faith, and certainly the first time you do it, it takes a massive leap of faith, because that, you know, that $600, 500 is 500 pound 450 pound it's a lot of money if you're not going to get that back especially if you're promoting a free book but you know with the experience i had i i still you know my strategy is is a book bub with a free book so long as you've got a trilogy so long as you've got some read through there where you you're you're making money on books two and three that has worked constantly in in sci-fi and thrillers for me it's always made much more i've always made at least hundred percent usually two to three hundred percent even in the worst case scenario um, on a bookbub featured deal so free books is what I call the poor the poor writers bookbub in that it's much much cheaper it's you know sixty seventy dollars but bookbub really will move the needle for you. I think the first time I did a bookbub on the don't tell Meg trilogy I shifted about I was Amazon exclusive and I shifted about 30 to 35,000 free books and it resulted then in about it was 5,000 pounds of income from people reading through books two and three and then also getting what we call reads because I was in um, KDP select in Amazon select um, they could read the book you get paid for page reads as well and that allowed gave about 5,000 that first month and then you know a couple of thousand for the next two months um, so it, it was well worth that expenditure now with bookbub ads they're a different thing don't get the mixed up featured deals great um i have not promoted a 99 pence or cents book on bookbub and my perception of it is uh, you know for most authors that at best they get their money back and a little bit more but they don't really make a huge amount of money from it uh in in the way that you can with a free book so i've avoided 99 pence and cents deals because I want to make decent money. I don't want to just cover my costs. I want to make a decent amount of money, um, you know. And I don't want to take the risk of not of not covering my costs. I don't want it to be a uh, you know by the skin of your teeth kind of scenario. Uh, I want to make sure I'm going to make some money. So featured deals, yes, absolutely. Bookbub ads, hmm. I've used. I've spent a lot of money on bookbub ads, and I I keep try, I keep coming back into the boxing ring, you know, to get to to get beaten up again to try and make them work. My perception of bookbub ads is. They burn your money really fast. They'll really take your money off you. Um, and it, they're quite expensive. And it's very hard to track results or see whether you're getting results from BookBub ads. Now, um, I have on my shelf, and I would recommend that you read Dave Gochran's book on BookBub ads. It's a very good book. It's very easy to understand. I've tried doing what Dave does. And I think poss possibly the, the, the problem has been that I haven't been prepared to burn off enough money to find the ad that works. I certainly have had some good conversions on BookBub ads, but I've never really felt that BookBub was making me the sales. I think that's that's the problem. This is just the ads, not the featured deals. So, you know, what I would say to you with BookBub ads is I wouldn't make that my number one advertising priority. You should certainly try it and have a go with it. It will burn your money up really quickly. You're better off, I think, doing BookBub ads when you're a bit flush, when you've got some money in your pocket and you can afford to burn off and experiment a little bit. Um, but I, I've yet to sort of see results from them. But by results, I mean 
um, you know, money in my pocket. I can see that I'm getting clicks. I can see that I've got some audiences on there that work really well. But, you know, has it translated to income? I think that's a little less certain from my point of view. One or well, two sites, two cheap sites I massively recommend for marketing are BK Nights on Fiverr.com and Book Doggy, which is a new kid on the block again. So BK Nights, is, it's been on Fiverr for years and it, it literally costs you $5 to get a free book promo. But, um, you know, I go back to what I was saying about BookBub. When I've done promotions on BK Nights, I, it moves the needle. For $5, it moves the needle. And at $5, you've only got to make a couple of sales and you've made more than your money back. But I can always see when I do a BK Nights promo, you know, it's only $5, so it doesn't have to do an awful lot. But I, I've always been able to see with a BK Nights promo, promo that I've managed to make some extra sales on that day. And because it's $5, I mentioned it because it's a, that's a budget that everybody can afford to promote their books. And then the next up on sort of the, the budget hierarchy is Book Doggy. And that's about $20, I think it is, which is about £15 for a promo. Again, you know, Book Doggy, it's a new kid on the block, nice and innovative. Uh, what I particularly like about Book Doggy is the way they change the headlines of their emails every day so that they'll get more attention in terms of people opening the email. So they have some nice promos. They have a nice tone of the emails that they send out. Um, and they also, you know, they've done some nice things. With, when I was doing my book promo, they noticed that I'd done a lot of promos and they sent me an email and, and said, this one's on us. They, you know, they, there was that kind of personal element to it where they were encouraging me as an author. I appreciated that. So, um, you know, it, it's cheap as well. Um, and I think my feeling is with Book Doggy, just looking at those early, the, the early things they've done and how strong they've been out the gate, I think Book Doggy's you know, one to watch and one to try. Moving on to marketing item number four then, Facebook ads. Uh, Facebook ads are what have given me my breakthrough with the five-figure months. That's just Facebook ads. And I've used Facebook ads before. The ironic thing about it is uh, if you've listened to any length of time, you could you could read the blog post at paulteague.com about this. But uh, you know, I was banned by Facebook and I was actually doing really well on Facebook ads um, with my Don't Tell Meg books. Uh, I was making money on those and then I got blocked on Facebook for a long time. I couldn't get unblocked. And so I, I went away from Facebook ads for a long time and then I sort of found out how to, how to get back on it. And as soon as I got back on it, I've started having results, probably because I've got so many books now, to be fair. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll talk to you about what I think's moved the needle with the five figures at the end of this episode. But Facebook ads have always worked for me. The lead ads work brilliantly. The promo ads work brilliantly. The audiences work brilliantly for me. You know, as authors, we can always find our audience on Facebook. The click prices are cheap. It is complicated. You know, I, I, I invested in Mark Dawson's course. I wouldn't have had a clue what I was doing if I hadn't invested in Mark Dawson's course. And then we've also got, is it Mal, uh, Mal Cooper, I think is Mal's surname. Mal Cooper's um, Facebook books, Help My Facebook Ads Suck. Great book, um, version two. Uh, is the one to get rather than version one. I bought version one and version two, uh, and there's some really great practical tips there. Uh, so you do need to learn how to do Facebook ads, but I never regret spending that money on Mark Dawson's Facebook course. That just taught me everything I needed to know about lead ads and Facebook ads. It was brilliant. Mal's book is also brilliant with those tweaky, nice tweaking tips as well. But Facebook ads, all the time for me. Um, I, I've, you, you've heard me rant about how vulnerable Facebook ads make you. They do make you vulnerable. You know, I wish they would just be more even about the way they deal with adverts that for whatever reason they've got a problem with. 
um, you know, so they talk to you first rather than banning you and they, they had a dialogue with you. That's really what I want from Facebook. It's not unreasonable, I don't think. Um, so that's my only proviso with Facebook. But, you know, there's nothing quite like them. They are amazing. And retargeting adverts, of course, you can do with Facebook. I use all of it and I love all of it. Um, so Facebook ads are my number one marketing tool. Number five in there is book funnel, story origin, and prolific works. Now, when you start writing books, you don't have any kind of budget. You've maybe got the first book and you're just trying to get that in people's hands. Maybe you've got two books. You need to just get those books out there in some way. And often what most people do is they write their book, they list it on Amazon, they make no sales, and then they start to find podcasts and websites where they start then to learn how you sell a book because that's half the problem, isn't it? It's all right writing them. We've got to sell the blasted things. So what you can do to get your books into people's hands and start getting reviews on them is to use giveaway sites. And the advantage of a giveaway site is that you give your book away or a sample of your book and people exchange their name and email address with you in exchange for your book, for a free copy of your book. And so when you've got your next book ready, you've got a whole list of emails from people who've already read your first book that hopefully you can then sell it, sell to them. So although it's free up front, it, you do get their email in exchange and that builds up a, an email list, a marketing list of people that you can sell your books to in future. And you know, as a strategy for a new author, you want to be building up that list of emails as high and as fast as you can. And the tools to do that are book funnel, story origin, and prolific works. Those book, those sites effectively allow you to list your book for free or as um, as a sample, and then and when people you can take part in in free promotions, uh, where other marketers will help you to get some eyeballs on your book, uh, dependent on their genre. And so you can then get your books into people's hands. You can start getting reviews on those books, and you can start to build your email marketing list now. In terms of which are best, I did a, an episode on BookFunnel as one of these author boot camps, so do check that out. But BookFunnel is my favorite, Story Origin is second, Prolific Works is third. Now, I have no problem with using all three of them. They all work, they're all, they're all absolutely fine. But if you ask me which one should I prioritize, BookFunnel first, Story Origin second, Prolific Works third. But if you could afford to, if you've got the time, if you want to, use all three of them, because they all work and they'll help you do the job. I just feel that BookFunnel has got the edge on the other two in terms of you know how, how easy it is to use, how well it works, the quality of the readers, all those sorts of things. Um, but BookFunnel is my favorite. Number six, book sweeps. This is, uh, again, this is a, a tip that I, I don't really hear a lot of other podcast hosts talking about, but I, I've been very grateful to book sweeps. It's worked really well for me. Essentially, it's another way to build up your email marketing list. But the way that book sweeps does, you pay to take part in the giveaways. They provide a, a prize, usually an e-reader, but they also provide you with fantastic graphics as well. So you effectively take part in a giveaway, uh, and I think um, book sweeps, you know, will send out an email for it. So that's an extra advantage you don't get with those other sites that I just mentioned. They provide for you some fantastic promotional graphics for you to promote it as well. Plus all the other authors who are taking part promote the giveaway and there's a good prize and a good incentive. And I've always done really well with book sweeps. It's always helped me to build up my list really well. But I don't hear other people talking about it. Uh, I get on perfectly well with it. It has an affiliate scheme too, which is uh, useful if you want to sort of make that little bit of extra money. I've had a few affiliate referrals to, to BookSuite, which all, every little bit helps, doesn't it? But um, yeah, I like it. And um, you, you won't read a lot about it. You won't see a lot of people talking about it on podcasts. But I 
do recommend it to you as a marketing tool to help you to build your list. Again, you know, it is paid, it's not very expensive, but I've done well, I've listed thrillers on it, I've listed sci-fi books on it, and I've found the quality of the readers and the number of the readers I've got from it always very satisfactory. Number seven is reader links. And reader links is a tool that I came to fairly late. And you could use reader links for all sorts of reasons, you know, all sorts of kind of author purposes. Essentially, reader links, its main tool seems to be to help you manage the money side of your business, although it's got some extras in there. The reason I like reader links is, and, and I did come late to it, is it, it really easily helps you to assess the read-through between your books. And because my personal author strategy is writing in trilogies, um, the, the read-through is really important. Now, if you don't know what read-through is, um, it's an important factor when you're doing promotions on BookBub and giving the book one away for free. So say you've written a trilogy and book one is absolute rubbish and people don't get past the 10th page and they never read any more of it because the book's so rubbish, yet you've written books two and three. Now, if that's the case, you can do whatever you want with book one, you know, to, to try and market it, but no one's ever going to buy books two and three because book one is so bad. You need to make book one great so that people will then want to, they'll be desperate to read books two and three, because that's how you make more money when people read through the full trilogy. So what ReaderLinks does is it gives you data to tell you the percentage of people who are, are buying book one and then going on to read book two and going on to read book three. And that data, that information, if you're very geeky, I'm afraid this is always a little bit more than I can take, you can work out the numbers and work out what your ad spend is. Um, in actual fact, ReaderLinks does tell you automatically these days what you can bid in Amazon to make money. So, you know, basically, if I give a book one away for free, but I make, say, $5 on the sales of book two and three, and every one in 10 person buys book two and three, where they get book one for free, it allows me to do calculations to say, well, you know, although nine out of 10 don't buy, because one in 10 do, you know, it makes me $5. I can spend, I don't know, these are just random numbers. I can spend 20 pence um, on getting a customer on Amazon per click, because I know I'm gonna make more than my money back. So effectively what ReaderLinks does, very simply, is it does complex calculations and simply shows you, number one, how successful your books are in terms of people buying them and reading them through. That could give you some hints about maybe rewriting, about your strategy with them, and whether it, you could afford to spend on advertising. And then ReaderLinks also gives you numbers, specific numbers to tell you how much you could bid for if you're using Amazon ads uh, to make sure that your adverts are profitable. So it's probably slightly more advanced. ReaderLinks is not like a beginner's uh, tool. You, you need to have at least sort of a series, really, I would suggest, um, or, you know, three books for a trilogy or a series uh, for, for ReaderLinks to work. Uh, but at that stage, it's a very good tool to look at. So um, in terms of marketing, then, let's move on to item number nine, Amazon ads, which I've already uh, mentioned in terms of reader links, Amazon ads. Um, Amazon ads, I want to love. I use them all the time. They frustrate me constantly. I do keep listening. You know, I read the books on it. I read book blogs on it. I listen to Brian Cohen. I keep listening to all the stuff and trying to get the, the tricks and the hints. But my impression is, having used them, having spent quite a lot of money on them, is that they can work beautifully in a small way. So I've had many adverts that have been profitable, that have given me, you know, 100 to 2% 200% uh, profit, 
but the problem is with it is that I'm I can't sell enough books so I might only be selling 10 books at maybe 100% or 200% profit and that's all very nice thank you I need to be selling a thousand books at 100 or 200% profit to make some real money from it so this is my constant frustration with Amazon is that yes it works yes I can see it works but I just can't scale it up and that's always my problem with Amazon so I would definitely say to you use Amazon ads yes of course you know use Amazon ads but um, you, you know, the, I, I have uh, so far, and this may change in the future, because so far I have been unable to make them work at a scale that excites me, even though at a tiny scale, I am having ads that work. And the most successful Amazon ads I've had are frankly, the ones where I don't write any ad copy, um, where they're automatically targeted, and I don't write any of the ad copy. So but the most automated ads that you can possibly do are the ones that always make me more money. Um, and I say, you know, I, every now and then I, I, I try and have another go at it, but nothing has really moved the needle for me yet. Now, a lot of that's to do with probably my lack of patience going through the numbers with, with Amazon ads. So my kind of advice to you is certainly use them. They need to be on your radar, but expect it to be quite a slog in the way that I don't think Facebook ads is. You get some pretty fast results on Facebook ads. Expect it to be a bit of a slog with Amazon ads. A marketing point that I wanted to make, um, not because I'm recommending it, because I actually want to sound some caution with it, is email and list swaps. So when you've got, uh, I you know, I prefer to use Book Funnel Story Origin and pr Prolific Works, which is, a, it's a little bit like a list swap, but it's not quite the same as a list swap. When you do a list swap with somebody, say you've got 500 subscribers on your email list, a list swap is where you find another author who's got a list of about 500 readers on their list. They write in a similar genre and they send an email to your book and, uh, and you send an email to their book recommending it to your readers and you make a few sales from their audience and they make a few sales from their audience. Now, I, I used to do this a lot when I was in internet marketing and I don't touch it with a barge pole now as a consequence as an author because what I think that does in, in, when I send out an email to my email subscribers, I want it to be all about me, me, me. Totally self-centered, it's all about me. I don't want it to be about somebody else. Now, I'm quite happy to send out a book funnel link that I'm to a promotion that I'm taking part in to say, hey, by the way, I'm taking part in a book funnel link. If you want to get this book for free and look at lots of others you know, in this genre, click on this link now. Very happy to do that. But what I'm not happy to do, because I think it erodes the list, I think, frankly, you know, if you're on my list, you're there because you like my books. And if you're not, then you can unsubscribe at any time. Okay, you're not there because you like somebody else's books. And I'm I'm a sort of, I have difficulty reading in that, you know, I don't want you recommending, I, I'm quite reserved about what I read. You know, I, I need to come to it gently. I'm, I'm saying with my music taste, you know, I need to be introduced to new music gently. I like what I like. A lot of the time so i i wouldn't if you're sending me lots of different authors all the time um i'm not going to be interested i'm just it's just going to wash straight over me and so that's i don't do that to my readers either you know sending them a load of authors that they're probably not even even interested in um because i think that erodes your list um and and i certainly had that experience in internet marketing i used to find you know i'd, I'd you'd be doing swaps for software and products and their products were rubbish and, and you get complaints from your email list and some of them would unsubscribe saying why you said there'd be this junk i just think my personal opinion is with this and other people will you know will differ with this is just my opinion i don't like 
straight email swaps and I've never done one in, in as an author simply because I um, you know for the, for the very reason that I think it will burn your list up it will peeve off your your subscribers the only way I would consider it is with somebody I've done a collaboration with so uh, before I got the rights back to Now You See Her with Adam Nichols, I co-wrote with Adam Nichols, to me, because we'd co-written a book, that would have been a completely sensible way to do a list swap because the whole point of the collaboration was I'd moved a few of his readers over my way, he'd moved a few of his readers over my way. You know, was, we'd, we'd done a reciprocal exchange already. So to me, that made sense. It would also make sense, um, you know, again, you've got to make sure your list size is the right size. But if John and James Evans, who I've written some sci-fi with, you know, if I if I did a promo to them and they did a promo, promo to me, that would make sense because we've written together. We are joint authors as well as single authors. But I wouldn't do it with an author who was unrelated. You know, I wouldn't send out 10 emails saying, oh, here's another author pal who's written another book that you probably won't be interested in. I, I just wouldn't do that. Uh, and my experience as an internet marketer tells me it doesn't work and it does a disservice to your own list. I think your list should be all about me, me, me in a nice way, but they're there to hear about your books, not somebody else's books. That's just my opinion on that. Finally, in this list of marketing tips, I just want to mention social media to you because if you're new to this business, your immediate instinct will be to go on to Twitter or Facebook or whatever channels you've got and to do these kind of posts that say, buy my books, buy my books, buy my books. Did you know I've got a new book coming out? Don't do that. It's really spammy. It's really annoying. You'll soon lose all your friends when you do that. And, and I don't think it actually works for anybody. The reason that Facebook adverts work is because you actually pick people through targeted audiences who will be interested to hear your book because that's what they like reading. That's the precise reason that you chose an audience for it. But I think that mentioning books all the time on your social media channels, and it's attractive, of course, because it's free. But I think, again, you know, people aren't really there to hear that stuff, not unless you're very established as an author already. And I think sharing that stuff, it gets a bit wearing. So um, I never share it on my personal channels. And if I do have a new book out, I'll maybe mention it once and, and that's it. And it generally, um, the clue is in the word social, it's social media. The clue is that we don't really want to be sold stuff on social media. So I would make the post, if you have got a new book out, I would make the post social in nature so you know for instance my book uh, the the left for dead book is based on Morecambe I might on social media put a photograph of, of uh, what's let where the old pier used to be in Morecambe and say you know I've just released my new book today and then make it a social post to say it's based on uh, you know years living in that area and many visits to Morecambe as a seaside resort um, you know really enjoyed writing this book so the post is social the secondary purpose of it, obviously, is to let people know that you've written a book. So if you do use social media, what I would recommend against it, this is free social media, don't just keep posting, hey, I've got a new book, buy it here, buy it here, buy it here. No one wants to hear that on social media. Try and come up with a social element, a social dimension to your post. Tell a story around the post. Um, you know, don't make it buy my book because <laughs> that doesn't just doesn't work on social media and anybody will tell you that you know it just doesn't really work on twitter at all or, or on facebook uh you know again on your personal facebook profile i would recommend not saying buy my book to your pals and your friends i i would suggest you just keep it well off there and set up a facebook page 
for people who are at least interested in your books and just let them know that the book's available and then be done with it but make that a socially based post not a salesy based post okay that's 10 things to do with marketing i've now got 10 tips and hints again from my experience you may agree with them you may disagree with them they're just offered in the hope that they might be of use to you um so tips and hints for self-publishing number one forget the launch it doesn't matter you'd have heard me on the podcast many a time saying oh i've used my flop it out book release strategy which is basically i'm writing so fast i've no time to do proper promotions the book's released but i'm not really doing anything with it and i've done that so many times uh you know that's virtually been my marketing strategy at first in that i've never really done the big launch and i think the reason i've never really done the big launch before is because i did it so many times as an internet marketer and you know you'd save up all this energy and put all this energy into a launch and uh it was a you know, massive expenditure of energy and often the launch would fail and you'd be left disappointed but it doesn't matter with books all the success i have i've had with my books has always been well after the launch so if you think about the secret bunker i made i'm making more money in the secret bunker now than i've ever made even though that series of books is five years old and the reason that i'm making more money than i've ever made is because i know how to market them better now that, that's that's the only reason um yet if i'd have said at the launch oh that book failed well i did feel that because i didn't know i, I didn't know what i'm telling you now when I, I launched those books i thought those books were failures because I, I did the the big launch hadn't got a clue what i was doing a handful of people bought them i was just lucky that they bought the paperbacks in the bookshop because that, that was making me you know good good sales but you know it, it just nothing happened and i hear so many people talking to me about the launch oh yeah i'm getting ready for a big launch and i just think you know doesn't really matter uh, th this is why I like writing books because when I used to do internet marketing if the launch didn't go well well the product would because it was about an internet subject would date pretty quickly and you didn't really get a second try at it you got a few extra tries but you know it, it's life its shelf life was was very limited whereas with the book I always say look at the Handmaid's Tale as an example of this you know that um, Margaret Atwood had um, had the book obviously had the film in that was it the 80s or the 90s that the first film and then look at it now you know all those years since the original book was published it's huge the the handmaid's town now so books are assets at any time in your life they can take off okay don't make it all about the launch please don't make it all about the launch that's if it's one thing i've learned is that it really doesn't matter in fact i barely do a launch now and you'll hear joanna penn say the same thing she, she kind of barely does a launch now she you know she mentions it on a podcast but she doesn't do you know everything doesn't depend on the launch because again you know she's realized i've realized that you often make more sales well after the launch so it really isn't about that the other thing is is you can revise your book you can revamp it you can re-edit it you can add a new cover you can deconstruct it you could do that as many times as you need to to make that book sell this is the joy of self-publishing so if you launch the book 10 people buy it five of them think it's rubbish doesn't matter i've i've relaunched books where i've changed the title and the cover and I'm making more sales than I was before. This, that's pretty well what a lot of my re-release was about. And it took me about three tries to get a couple of my thrillers right now. And now I've got so many people reading this this book box set of 12. And I've got so many people telling me yeah, every single book in that box set is great. They're all completely different. I really feel for the first time that I've now got those, having you know edited and re-edited those standalone thrillers, that I've got them right now because I'm getting the right feedback. But I wrote them three years ago. Right, so you know, so have this this attitude of 
iteration. We do the best we can. We launch the books where we can. If it doesn't go well, if it, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We can come back. We can do it again. We can do it again. We can do it again. We can do it again until a darn thing works. Okay, so don't make it all about the launch. Don't be disappointed or disheartened if the launch doesn't do well. It really doesn't matter in the long term. It might feel like it in the short term. I can tell you in the long term, it doesn't matter. Item number two of the tips and hints. I think that 10% plotting is better than 100% pantsing. I started as a pantser. I'm now much more of a plotter, but I still don't overplot. You know, I'm not one of these authors who could do 10,000 words of backstory and character analysis and all of that. I don't need that much, to be honest with you. I still like a lot of my writing to be about discovery. I like to figure it out as I go along a lot of it, but I have found that some plotting is better than no plotting, even a very, very loose plot, just a direction of travel. So I would recommend to you, um, you know, and I am, I am by heart a pantser, in that, you know, I love, if I had the whole book planned bit by bit by bit and nothing changed, that would bore me. I'd be bored writing it. It would feel like writing non-fiction where I know exactly what's going to happen. I know exactly the order things have to come in. I've just got to write the words. I don't want my fiction ever to feel like that. But I have found over 23 fiction books, whatever it is I've written now, that a little bit of plotting, a little bit of outlining, just to know the direction of travel, the key points, that's very, very helpful. So I would recommend a little bit of plotting if you can. Item number three, listen to podcasts constantly. I was thinking back the other day, I was thinking to one of our Spanish trips and I was thinking while I was listening to podcasts, I was listening to Joanna's podcast, I was listening to the you know, Johnny, Dave and Sean, I was listening to their podcast um, because those were the main podcasts in those days. And I was thinking that must be four years ago. I must have been listening to podcasts really early on in my author career. I'm still listening to podcasts, you know, as many podcasts as I can find. And I don't care where the, the podcast presenters are in their author journey, whether they're right at the beginning or they're making thousands of pounds. I just immerse myself in podcasts constantly because you never know where that next golden tip is coming from and you never know who's going to give it to you or who's just going to make you rethink something that you were doing and see it a different way. So immerse yourself in writing podcasts, you know, constantly be listening to them as, as much as you can because you never know where the next life-changing hint is coming from. The thing that has moved the needle for me is, is listening to John Cronshaw's Weekly Diary which isn't actually even for authors. It's actually primarily for listeners, John's diary. It's like an accountability diary. And it was just listening to John mention this thing a couple of times. It made my ears prick up. And I thought, I'm going to ask him about that. And that is what, that's the single thing that has suddenly moved the needle for me. And it came from a podcast that isn't, you know, primarily even for writers. It's it's for a bit of both, really. Uh, but it's, it's an author diary. So, um, you know, those ideas could come from everywhere. Have your radar tuned ready to receive ideas where they come and they can come from anybody and anywhere item number four in the tips and hints beware the hype of rapid release <laughs> he can talk you can say yeah you know last year was all about rapid release but another thing this is another advantage of being an old geezer is that I don't think I've ever wasted anything in my life you know no, no experience is ever wasted so I remember when I was a teacher and I used to look at my brother who was who was always in sales 
and he always used to have nice flashy sales cars and things like that and I thought well I fancy a bit of that because I was a teacher at the time and I went off for six months from a teaching job and did sales I didn't I knew the first day I was there I wasn't going to like it and I actually found out I didn't care about the cars all I wanted because they didn't know what to do with me because I used to just say well I'd rather just have something that's you know small nippy and easy to park I don't need a big car or a fast car they didn't know what to do with me because that's how they voted everybody in the sales environment so I was useless at sales I knew I wasn't going to stick at it from day one and but I learned so many things from that job uh, and interestingly one of the things that, that I learned there that served me really well as a journalist was it toughened me up because I was very young at the time when I did that I was in my 20s when I did that job and um, I used to have to go into some quite um, quite aggressive and rude motor dealers in Blackpool um, and they'd, they'd tell you to sling your hook but in a much less polite way if they were in the middle of something and I used to have to do arrears calls as part of that job too so I used to have to take people's cars off them and repossess them and that experience I was and I was good at it because I, I could uh, I could you know for some reason people didn't find me threatening um, and, and so whereas some of the bigger guys would get chased and, and, and get into violent situations people didn't find me threatening they just give me the keys and, and let me let me have the car and I, I used that experience later on in when I was a journalist because as a journalist you have to use a combination of um, you know carrot and stick in that most of the time, you know, you're on the radio, you've got to be charming with people, um, you've got to make them relaxed. But actually, sometimes in your journalistic career, you've got to be really tough. And it goes back to something I was telling you earlier in this podcast, you've got to make sure you leave with that interview. And I can remember an example with Kevin Keegan, where Kevin Keegan was coming to do interviews, and I was there, and they were expecting something for me for the lunchtime show. And he was late, and they were trying to squeeze us out. Um, you know, and, and give us a minute or something like that or make us share the audio. And at certain times in life, you have to step up and say, no, we were promised this, I need my slot. You know, and, and so sometimes you have to be quite tough. And, and, and doing that first job that I hated, you know, gave me loads of experiences. It also took me to Blackpool, which is where much of Don't Tell Meg is there. You never waste an experience. Sometimes it's hard to see that when you're younger, but when you sort of, you know, get further out, when you start reeling out your life a bit more and you can look back more, you realise that nothing is ever wasted. Even if it was a horrible experience, you, you never you never waste it. So what I would say um, with rapid releases is, you know, funnily enough, it didn't work for me at all. But because of rapid release... When I heard that nugget from John Cronshaw on his podcast, because I follow tip three and always immerse myself, I'm always receptive to learning and what other people are doing, I had all the books ready to have a 12-pack box set, which I wouldn't have done if um, I hadn't done rapid release. And although the work that I did for rapid release didn't do the thing I wanted it to do, it's done exactly what I wanted it to do when I was following John's process. So it wasn't wasted time. So to give that some context, that isn't what I wanted to tell you. I just wanted to say to you that beware the rapid release hype. At the time of recording, there's quite a lot of hype about rapid release, and which is why I did it. And I don't regret doing it for the reasons I've just told you. But, you know, it's not, no, nothing is sort of the magic bullet with this. You've got to make it work. And, um, you know, I sold some books with rapid release. I, I learned some new tricks. I've got a really good set of books now. You know, it's, I don't regret it for one minute, but it didn't work. 
and I, I, I gave a lot of time to rapid release. And I think my view of rapid release is that it probably works brilliantly for people who already have a massive hungry audience, you know, because basically uh, when they're just waiting for the next book. If you're in that situation, if you're, if you're ever in that happy situation, I think rapid release is great. Um, but I think that if you're not in that situation, then they're not. I, you know, I saw, they talk about these cliffs, Amazon cliffs and all these 30 day, I saw no, none of that. So none of that at all. Uh, in action at all um, you know Amazon did send out some emails on my behalf promoting my books but I saw none of that stuff in action even though I was promoting heavily and all those things so um, uh, take rapid release with a pinch of salt do look at the people who are recommending it because I'm sure it works for them absolutely you know, of course it works for them they wouldn't be telling us otherwise but if you're like me a kind of mediocre author who doesn't have a particular following I'm not saying that to put myself down. I'm just saying that's a realistic. That's realistically where I am as an author. I don't have this massive fan base all waiting and holding their breath for my next book. Then rapid release is probably going to have limited results for you. Moving on then to point five in the tips and hints. And that is a very simple one. Join the 20 books to 50k Facebook group and join the self-publishing formula group, both of which are open and free to attend and attend their events where you can. So you might be in the US, you might be in the UK, you might be in a different part of the world, but self-publishing formula, it looks like they're gonna have annual UK events, fantastic. I've been to the 20 books events uh, twice now, they're fantastic. Whether I'll go to the US, I'm not sure. I'll probably make the switch to self-publishing formula group. But if you want two groups that have positive people who are doing the work where the support is great and the ethos is great, those are the two places to go. 20 books to 50k on Facebook, self-publishing formula on Facebook. One in the US, one in the UK, and you'll get what you want there. You know, you'll get the kind of um, feedback that you want there, the information that you want there. Those are the great groups to join. Number six, be wary of collaborations. I've done two collaborations now, and I, I did want to do collaborations. I, you know, I like to try everything. I said to you earlier, I like to put my hand on the hot stove uh, to convince myself that it really is hot. So I do like to try stuff. I never regret trying stuff because I learn and I know then. I'm not always there thinking, oh, I wonder if a collaboration would work. I put my money where my mouth is, I try it, and I find out for myself, just like I did with Rapid Release. And then I, and then I make my decision based on experience which is how I just prefer to do things. So um, I don't regret my collaborations, but I don't think I'll be collaborating again. That's my, that's my sort of conclusion from it. And I always want to stress that I've had very good experiences with both of the collaborators that I've worked with. So they've been dream experiences. I get paid on time. You know, everything's been absolutely fine. No problems at all. But I, from a personal point of view, I, I said to you before I did collaborations that I don't play well with people, with other people in that I'm a bit of a lone ranger, to be honest with you. I like to do stuff myself. You know, I, I, I do, I, obviously I am receptive to learning. I don't just plough my own course and ignore what everybody's saying. Um, but essentially, you know, I'm, self, I'm quite self-contained. I'm happy working by myself. I'm, ha you know, I'm happy to figure these things out by myself. And then I make contacts and talk to people when I need to be. So I, I think I'm quite, you know, I think I network well with people, but, but I like to have a lot of control with my own products. I, I, haven't, I just haven't liked losing control. I like to have the control over everything, um, over the story, over the marketing. Um, and that's not a reflection of the people I've worked with. It's, that's about me. 
um, and about what suits me. So I'm really pleased I've done collaborations. Um, they undoubtedly taught me things, you know, I'm, and I'm still learning from the collaborations. They brought me to a new audience. Um, I, I think I wrote some of my best books for the collaborations as well. It was very interesting that I think that because I was all the time aware of writing for somebody else, I think it really pushed me to write some really you know, great sort of books out the gate, really. Um, so I'm very pleased with the books I wrote for collaborations. I don't regret it for one minute, but what I've learned from that is that it doesn't really suit my personality style. Now, if a collaboration delivers a wad of cash, I will backpedal right on that because my profitability elements come in. You know, my I do this for profit and then I don't care. If a collaboration makes me a ton of cash, then forget everything I've said. I don't care, right? Because it now becomes a profitable, very profitable thing to do. So, you know, or if it introduces me to an audience or gives me an experience I couldn't do on my own, fantastic. But if you ask me, would I collaborate again? No, I wouldn't collaborate again, even though I'm happy with the collaborations that I've done because of me, uh, because of the way I'm wired. I just prefer to do my own thing, really. I like to have control over everything. Um, number seven, writing to market is essential. And Chris Fox has done a great book on this, Write to Market. Um, I think I've always been quite good at writing to market, but I've become super focused with it in the thrillers. And actually, um, I've said in recent weeks that I really feel like I know what my brand is now as a writer. Um, and you know, I, and, I, and I, I think even though I was always writing to the thriller market, I was writing the right books for the market. I don't think I quite got my brand honed now. And I know that I'm, what, I'm writing, what I write now is fast-paced psychological thrillers, which include um, men and women in domestic situations they're not your jack reacher kind they've got no special skills they're just ordinary people who get themselves into terrible situations and they have to figure out a way out of that but they're just normal people with no special skills can't shoot guns they can't do great stunts horrible people in horrible situations um i don't have um i'm very limited on swear words now that's a big change uh, sex scenes. Um, I've got still got sex scenes. In Don't tell me if I ever rewrite that, I'll take them out um, because I know that my audience prefers me not to have those. So I've got a real strong sense of my audience now, of my market and the market. Uh, so I know what I write now, and I, and, and um, I really felt that with now you see her, and with um, the Walker Bay trilogy, with those books, I felt like I was really writing to my market and to the market. I really felt like I got it with those books now. So writing to market is essential when you write to market. And incidentally, you know, going back to something I've already said to you, uh, Kalytics helped me writing to market as well. I, I find the Kalytics data helps me to write to market as well. Uh, very useful information from there. Uh, yeah, so with Kalytics, um, writing to market effectively is giving your audience what they want. That's all it is. Give them what they want, not what you think they want or not what you want. Give them what they want. And then you'll sell more books that way. And again, without me going into great detail with this, just buy Chris Fox's book, Right to Market, and it tells you everything you need to know about that. I think the other thing that I found, and this is very much a time and motion thing, other people will disagree. This is just what I found. This is my experience. But unless the conventions of your genre dictate otherwise, write books at 75,000 words. I'm sticking my neck out on this one because I believe this is the optimal length based on the pricing potential, the editing costs, and the time it takes you to output books. 
So I've written books at 50K, I've written books at 90K and 75K. And I can sell 75K books at full price. They feel like they're a decent length book. I could write them faster than a 90K book or anything higher than 90K. They don't cost me too much to edit. So if I did a 150,000 word book, that's gonna cost me a fortune to edit and it's gonna give problems with the cover as well. Everything about a 75K book to me is in the sweet spot. So I'm writing all my books now at 75K. 50K was a little bit too short. Uh, I think I've got several 50K books, but they work very nicely in that box set, of course. So, you know, and they and they package together very nicely as box sets. So they still work for me, but I had more problems with my standalone 50Kers than I ever have with 75 and 90Kers. But to me, I'm looking at this from a business point of view. If you're looking at this as a conveyor belt, you know, you're a boss of a conveyor belt and you're saying, you know, I need so many sausages going through per minute and the sausages need to be so long in length because that gives me the right profit margin on the number of ingredients that are involved in a sausage. When I'm doing my factory operator, 75,000 word books, bang out, one after the other after the other. That is the sweet spot for me. That's what I write at. The other thing about a 75,000 word book is if you're writing these huge things, 150,000 words, it takes you twice the time. If you have a failure and you can't sell that book, it takes you twice the time to discover that that book's going to be a failure than it does if you wrote a 75,000 word book. So particularly with your first books, write them shorter while you're getting the hang of it. You know, don't invest years and years and years, years of your life and your money in editing in a book that's huge because you may find out that it's rubbish and or people won't buy it. And that's the other thing about a 75,000 word book is it's much easier for people to buy it and to try you out at 75,000 words. Okay, so you won't hear a lot of people say that. That's just my personal experience. That's what I do in my business. Um, you know, again, take it or leave it. I'm no guru, but that's my sweet spot. Item number nine, writing trilogies. They're easier to market. I've had all my success with trilogies. The moment I had a trilogy, I love the way you can market trilogies. I love the way you can put trilogies on BookBub. I love trilogies. I've got the Secret Bunker trilogy, the Grid trilogy, the Walker Bay trilogy. I'm just about to turn Now You See Her into the Shadow Falls trilogy. Then I'm going to write the Walker Bay trilogy. I've written a trilogy for John and James. Trilogies sell. Trilogies have, to me, the advantages of being a series, but not quite as long as a series. One of the complaints people have about series is that they go on and on and on, and often they sort of peter to a disappointing end, or you know they just never end, like come George R. R. Martin with uh, Game of Thrones. Um, you know, so, so there's a, to me, as a reader, there's a potential problem with the series that it never concludes. And I've been mindful, though, that people like L.J. Ross have had massive success with series, massive, massive success with series, and, and Mark Dawson has massive success with a sequential series. So what I'm doing next, um, at the time of recording this, is I'm, I'm going to try and get the best of both worlds. Trilogies have been very kind to me. They're, they're, they are undoubtedly what have helped me to make money. Actually, writing books is what's helped me to make money, but trilogies have helped me to make money as I've been going along. Um, I'm The next thing I'm going to do is to write a second trilogy for Morecambe Bay to create a series that is made up of trilogies. That's what I'm going to do. So that each trilogy within the series is sequential, but has a self-contained, riveting story that you could write in isolation. And that's going to be my strategy with the Walk and Bay. So I'm going to try that next. I'll have six books in the series. Historically speaking, they will be sequential. The next trilogy will obviously reflect what happens in the previous book. 
but not so that you have to read the previous trilogy to read the second trilogy. It'll be a standalone trilogy, but it will reflect the history across the six books. And then if that works, I will write Morecambe Bay as a, as a series, um, but they will be series born out of trilogies, so that at any time you've got a conclusion, a, you know, a conclusion that you can be happy with, rather than a, a series that's gone on at length that never that never finished. So my next strategy, or the next point in testing that, is to write the next Morecambe Bay trilogy, which will give me six books in the series, and then to put that to the test. But I, you know, you'll, you've heard me say it many, many times. I write in trilogies. Trilogies are what have helped me make any money ever with writing, even in the early days when I was making absolutely nothing. Trilogies are what work for me, so I swear by them. Finally, marketing is what makes the difference. This is point ten in the tips and tricks, and I've learned this, you know, because I I did the same old thing as everybody else. I wrote the secret bunker. I don't know who I thought was going to buy it. I thought that I would list it on Amazon and magically people would buy it. And before the end of the week, I'd be a literary superstar. That didn't happen. I had to listen to podcasts, read books, learn how to market. And I truly believe, this is my experience only, but I truly believe that you can write the best book in the world and it could be as big a literary sensation as you like. If no one reads it, you'll have the best book in the world and no money, no sales from it. You can have a mediocre book and you can sell it by the bucket load and make a lot of money. The difference is the marketing. Now, I am not telling you for one minute to put out rubbishy books. Your books must always hit a minimum quality threshold, always. I call it good to ship. It should always be good to ship. But I believe that there's a point at which that book is probably you know 95% ready to release. And by that, I mean you've got a proper cover on it, you've had a proper edit on it you know not 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 like your mum you know having a quick read um and saying she likes it i mean a proper editor doing a read um so you've spent the money on it you've produced it properly either in vellum or by getting a proper book formatter to do it and you've given that book the best chance it has but the truth is is that you can get that book to a certain point and you can fiddle with it and you can fiddle with it and you can fiddle with it and you can fiddle with that book forever but the difference you make to it after it's good to ship, will be minimal and, and negligible, frankly. And the best thing to do is to get your product where it's good enough to ship, to launch it and get it selling with good marketing, and then you'll soon find out whether it's rubbish or not because your audience will tell you. If you never sever, sell a copy, you'll never know. And marketing is what makes the difference. It really makes the difference. If you can't market, you won't shift your books. I don't care how good your book is. I don't care how long it took you. You know, I really don't care. It'll just sit there doing nothing if you can't learn to market it. So the sad truth about self-publishing is you've got to learn to market. You've got to do these marketing things. The only exception to that rule is that the lightning strike hits you magically, that planets align, and somebody finds the book, the right person at the right time, discovers it before you know it's in the national newspapers and it's a, a film sensation. Okay, that doesn't happen to most people. You have a girl in the train moment. But even um, Paula Hawkins, I think, had written three or four books before that and had terrible financial difficulties. So, you know, most people you usually find out aren't overnight sensations. You usually find that they've had some success beforehand and they've done the work. They've usually always done the work. Um, so, yeah, 
you know, don't don't get hung up on that. Always make sure your book hits those quality thresholds. I'm never, never, never suggesting that you put rubbishy books out ever, because if you put a rubbishy book out and you have brilliant marketing, you'll sell a lot of that book, but you'll never sell another book if it's rubbish or if the quality you don't meet that quality threshold. All I'm saying to you is it's marketing that makes the difference, the real difference. What I'd rather you did is put a brilliant book out with great marketing. That's what I'm saying, all right? But don't hang on forever. Polish, 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 polish. Because at a certain point, those improvements, inverted commas, that you make to the book are so incremental, they'll, they won't move the needle. The thing that will move the needle is great marketing. Okay, so that's the first 40 things that we've got here. We're now moving on to the last 10, and this is the crucial ones. Because the next 10 things are the things you need to know about becoming a five-figure a month author. These are the things that made the change for me. Number one on this list of 10 things then is my advice to use a credit card. The advertising expenses are relentless and it has been absolutely terrifying for me to see those advertising costs rack up on a credit card. I've never used credit cards like that before. But when you are doing advertising and the advertising is working, it's crazy not to. So long as you're monitoring your adverts, so long as you are making sure, absolutely sure, that you are making much more money than you are spending, then it will be crazy not to. And you're not going to find that amount of money anywhere else. Well, unless you're very well off, you're not going to have that cash ready to hand. So really, you've got no other choice but to put it on a credit card. But it's it's really been quite frightening about how relentless these, these bills are coming in. And the other thing I would say to you is, because I got a couple of credit cards, what I have done is I've used free transfer offers so I've let it run for a bit and then I can move it over to another credit card and I've moved it over to another credit card on a zero percent uh, interest basis and um, it's zero percent transfer I beg your pardon and then you get the 50 whatever it is days without having to pay for it so you can bump it if, you, if you're clever with your credit cards you can bump it so you don't pay any fees on what you've borrowed on the credit cards and you've got your money back from Amazon by the time it's uh, time to pay that bill so use a credit card don't pay it with cash use a credit card <laughs> actually that was advice I gave you after I did my um, what you call it, rapid release. So after I did my rapid release, I said to you, use it on a credit card. One of the things I regretted about that, even though I had the cash to hand, was paying for all my promo adverts. Um, always run it up on a credit card is what I would say. Stay as cash rich as you can. Just make sure you don't incur any fees on the credit cards. Otherwise, that's eroding your profit on the sales that you've made. Number two then, which kind of follows from that, I guess these could be the other way around. Um, Facebook ads really work. I mean, I've never known anything work as well as Facebook ads. And I've used them in a small way in the past. When Facebook banned me, I said earlier that they, uh, the, the Don't Tell Meg ads were working really well, which is why I was so frustrated about it. For the first time, I'd really got ads going in a big way with those Don't Tell Meg ads. And then they banned my account, which was very, very frustrating at that time. Uh, up to that point, I think it's fair to say that I probably had most success with at Facebook lead ads by getting the lead first of all and then making an offer on the page where they've signed up for whatever it is you're giving them. You can redirect them to another page and I turned that into a sales offer and I found that the most effective way way to date. But I think, you know, it works really well, Facebook ads. I'm, I, you know, I can't make Amazon ads work as well as that. I can't make email ads work as well as that. 
except a BookBub feature deal that works really well all the time. That's the only thing that's any, anywhere close to it. Uh, and I can't make BookBub ads work as well as that. So it really is Facebook ads for me. I mean, here's something where you might say to me, and I'm sure somebody who knows more about Facebook would say this to me. I've, I've targeted only women with this ad and I found it a completely pleasant, positive experience. Now I have targeted both genders in the past and I've had a lot of hassle, usually for the men. Um, you know, they just put negative stuff on there all the time. Uh, where, and the women are absolutely exceptional uh, in the way that they behave on social media constantly. I mean, I've got hundreds of comments on these Facebook posts now because they've gone to thousands of people. And constantly you will see the women on that page recommending the books to their friends or they will say, I'm in the middle of this book, really enjoying it. They'll say positive things, you know, loving the stories. I've read the book, fantastic, recommend it. And I think out of hundreds of comments, I've probably had three that were slightly off color. Nothing rude, nothing offensive. Uh, I think one person said something like, I found the first book very slow to get going and I struggled with it, which is fair enough. Uh, I don't, that's fine to me. That's not a trolley kind of comment. Uh, that's pr that's pretty well it you know there's one or two people found it a bit slow didn't really get on with it so left it um, and actual facts I had one of those this morning and she was responding to lots of comments where people had said how much they liked the stories and I got back to that lady and I said why don't you try left for dead why don't you skip ahead and try left for dead because that you should get straight into that story and I said and then you might trust the process of don't tell Meg you know once you've read uh, trilogy that just rattles straight on there's no kind of I think you know don't tell me it takes a little while not to warm up but it builds the strands of the story at first and I you know I call that psychological thriller intrigue but clearly other readers don't or, or some readers don't and so I suggested reading Left for Dead because I think I think once you'd read Left for Dead and you really enjoyed that story, you'd come back to Don't Tell Meg and say, well, I trust the author now and I trust that the author's going to get me where I need to be. Whereas I think if you start with Don't Tell Meg and if, if, if it's not your thing, then you might abandon it as that lady did. So that's, let's see how that goes. I'm going for that strategy at the moment. But yeah, targeting only women, you know, I know that's 50% almost of the, you know, of the people I could be targeting, but you know, I get a sweeter time for it. I'm thoroughly enjoying the experience. Uh, I don't, I'm not getting any trolley negative comments and it just suits me personally. Number four in this list, I would recommend, I get lots of people there saying, oh, I haven't got a Kindle, How I can't read it. And again, interesting, this is this is something that's great with the ladies. The ladies sort of pile on in there and say, oh, did you know you can read it on your phone? Did you know you can read it on your computer using the Kindle app? So often the audience answer the question, which is fabulous. You know, this again, this is, I love this supportive environment. But what I did is I've made a short video where I download the Kindle app and I show you how to get my book, purchase it, and then download it to the app. And then when people are asking about it, I just upload the, the video into the stream and say, if it's helpful, here's a how-to video. So you are going to get lots of questions about that, saying, can I read these books you know, without a, a Kindle reader? And so I just thought, well, let's just help people with that and that seems to have gone down really well what i have done with this deal is i did put in for a bookbub deal with it and it does give me a slight problem with the book in that when you're giving away 12 books for 99 cents 99 pence then if people 
get the free book on a BookBub deal, normally they would buy books two and three at full price. If they then go and discover the box set, that might shoot me in the foot. Now, I have got a backup version um, of the book without the Don't Tell Meg books in there. So I've done a, a second version. It's got 10 books in it. And it has, I've added in Now You See Her, and I've taken out the Don't Tell Meg trilogy. That gives me 10 books. So I do have an alternative version that I could promote, which hopefully would go as well if I put in for the BookBub. But the BookBub on a brand new thriller, psychological thriller trilogy, could potentially be worth about £5,000 to me from a BookBub. So uh, if I could also keep the Facebook ads going, that could be a very lucrative month. So they're not going to be back first time. I'll try again and see if I can get that promo on the well not don't tell Meg I'm not I don't want to put don't tell Meg in. it's not quite making enough money at the moment I will put it in later when when this has faded down this deal but I think you should try for a bookbub deal as well I think the reason that this offer has worked so well it would be easy to say oh it's just because of coronavirus and certainly that hasn't hindered me but I was doing this deal this deal was being promoted before we were all shut down with coronavirus so I started running this in I think it was mid-January so of course it was happening internationally but we weren't affected by it you know in the UK we weren't affected by this you know really until March so I had a clear had a clear over well over a month before really coronavirus was an issue so I have not framed that advert as a coronavirus advert I, that's not my thing it, it feels crass to me that um, and obviously when I did the adverts it really wasn't an issue it wasn't on my mind when I did it so why I think that deal has done so well is it's a complete no-brainer. It's 12 books for 99 cents. You know, frankly, you could read 12 of them, only like half of one. You'd still get value for money for 99 cents. Um, so it's a pilot high kind of offer. And because I'm targeting, clearly I've got the right audience. And all I've targeted is just um, psychological thriller readers. And I've gone through Amazon. I've gone for people like Harlan Coburn and Linwood Barclay. Those people are exactly where I write. And I've looked at the also reads and I've used my kind of knowledge of psychological thriller authors as well. And it's, it's nothing magic or clever about the audience at all. Um, targeted to women as well. Uh, targeted only in the US and the UK. But I think it's because it's a complete no-brainer deal. If you like those books, I do know that the Don't Tell Meg cover converts really well. People seem to really like that kind of silhouette cover. It does convert very well. And that, of course, is a Stuart Bache cover, but it does serve me well, that cover. But that, that's why I think it's worked. Now, clearly, there has been a, a coronavirus element to this. So a lot of people are saying, oh, this is a great book to read during lockdown but I haven't framed it as a pandemic offer at all and I wouldn't do and I wouldn't rewrite it as a pandemic offer I've just produced a great offer um, and it's up to them to decide it's up to the audience to decide whether that has anything um, any benefit for them within the pandemic but I'm not going to draw that differentiation I, I would never have done that either by the way to me uh, you know talking about the pandemic uh, in any way is so sensitive I just wouldn't do it I just wouldn't go there because there's to too many ifs buts you know so many people are uh, struggling they're losing loved ones uh, people are be worried about money and security and things like that it's just a can of worms so I'm just not going there uh, and that would be my advice you know to you if you're advertising during the pandemic as well so number seven this might not work with everything so I'm trying to get this going with sci-fi but it, it's selling some books with sci-fi, but it's not flying off the shelves like this one did. And what I've, I've done for a little while is I've just parked it for a little while because I, I just want to make sure I hit my financial objectives with 
this offer and then I will when I've hit my financial objectives then I'll be happy to put a little budget by to experiment with the sci-fi and see if I can get the sci-fi going so it might not work with every genre I'm doing this with psychological thrillers it's a hot genre and I know somebody was telling me about some book report recently that was saying that thrillers are going really well um, dur during the pandemic it's one of the genres that people are reading so again that might just be uh, fortuitous but I am struggling with sci-fi so it might not work with every genre just be aware of that to get the categories right and I've been number one I've certainly been top 10 for almost two months now at the time of recording this in my categories but actually I'm about I'm usually number one in one or two categories in the US and the UK and then I flip from two to three I just move around the positions depending on how many books I've sold that day but I'm not listed in the mega categories you know I wouldn't list in psychological thrillers so I've researched categories using Kalytics and Publisher Rocket to find those sweet categories that are busy in that people buy lots of books there but they're not so busy that I can't beat the big authors in those categories so I'd never go for the main thrillers psychological thriller categories I can't win those because the point of this is that if you go in for a less competitive um, genre or category if you go for a less competitive category then you can win those categories and if you get to number one in that chart Amazon's internal search engine will recommend you and give you more prominence. That's what you're playing for here. And I did that using Kalytics and Publisher Rocket. You get some great data off those two resources. The other thing I would also say is check your Facebook statistics, not just to make sure you're constantly in profit, but it's interesting. I always list six different images. Um, so you could list six images with an advert. I list six different images and then after about a week I start looking at the stats when I've had enough traffic over them to see which of the images is working better and Facebook also gives you feedback about engagement and things like that and so I was switching off the ones that don't work and it was very very clear quite early on that the cover that was working best for me was the Don't Tell Meg book cover and it just worked brilliantly compared with the other cover that I'd made on some sort of graphic site so always check the data and see if there's any information in there that you can make work for you and make the ads more profitable for you finally this is just a, a practical tip number 10 take plenty of screenshots to record all those lovely chart positions if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time you'll have heard me moaning that I've been able to get to number one in the free charts for ages but I've not been able to get a bestseller in the paid charts I've had a bestseller on this book for several weeks now um, you know and you think how long that I aspired to have that and now I'm not even looking at it I forgot I've, I've got it now and, but I have as it reached that bestseller status and it got to number one in paid charts I've got the screenshots and I've got some lovely screenshots next to Lee Chan and all these big authors you know I've got some lovely screenshots make sure you record it because you know this is what you use when you're doing your talks this is if you're doing a book or anything like that and you're telling people about your sales and how you've done it's always good to have screenshots so you've got the evidence of that uh, very handy if I'm doing talks webinars or anything like that to show those screenshots of where my books have got to and then I just wanted to make a last point this isn't one of the, the top 10 things it's really just a point I wanted to make that Facebook can and will take it all away in an instant you know if you've listened to this podcast for more than a year two years that they blocked my account once and it just meant I couldn't advertise on Facebook at all and when they do that you know you're scuppered uh, if you've not got anything else up your sleeve you're stuck so Amazon Facebook we're very very reliant on them 
and we are vulnerable and it is a model that's built on quicksand we just have to hope that that quicksand doesn't give way and we sink into it so you know you are a guest on facebook you are a guest on amazon they can throw you out anytime they want to now most of the time they won't most of the time that won't be a problem but just be aware of that it does give you a level of vulnerability and so obviously I've had success with Facebook at the moment but I can't just assume that that's going to go on forever I can't just say that's it Facebook I'm going to do that all the time now everything's fine because if they block me again I've got nowhere else to go uh, if I don't keep working on Amazon ads trying to get bookbub ads going and putting in for bookbub deals so it's really important even though you might get a little bit of success like I've had with this current offer it won't last forever something's bound to come to disrupt it and you need to have a plan up your sleeve for when it does but as I would say to you right now you make hay while the sun shines for as long as you possibly can okay that is it that's 50 things that is the teague wisdom after doing five years of self-publishing and four years of this podcast pulling it all together that's where i am in my indie author career that's the way that i think take what you want jettison what you don't want hopefully there'll be some nuggets in there that might help steer you into your breakthrough moment I have put everything I've learned into my latest book, non-fiction book, which I've called The Five-Figure Fiction Formula, How to Generate Five-Figure Monthly Sales from Your Writing. So I will outline in every detail all the resources, the podcast, everything I've done, everything I've learned, every little bit of information that I've used will be in that book. So that book is going to be available everywhere. It's listed wide. It's going to be an ebook and paperback available from Monday, the 15th of June, 2020. So if you're listening to this after that date, then go and grab it. It's on Amazon, Google, wherever you care to look for it. Um, you'll find it in ebook or paperback form. Thank you so much for listening. I wish you all the best with your own self-publishing journey. And until we speak again, bye-bye for now.